We're going to continue uh, our journey in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And we find ourselves in some, probably for many of us, uh, familiar verses. And, um, and certainly we're familiar. This is sort of colloquial language, isn't it? You know, we, we even talk about people as, the, oh, he's salt of the earth. We sing songs like, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But my hope this morning is that these words would fall fresh. They would, they would land on us um, in a powerful way. And um, that we would hear what the Spirit has to say to us. So let's pause and let's pray as we dig into God's word together. Father, as we come now to your word, we confess together that these are not just words, but that these are life. These are truth. And Jesus, what you're telling us, if we have ears to hear it, is that this is the way into flourishing. That we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That this is true nourishment for us. This is true life for us. And so God, help us. Help us to hear what you would say to us this morning. Help us to walk in these truths by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past couple weeks, uh, we've been unpacking the, the opening words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this most famous of sermons. And, and what we've seen is that as Jesus begins his sermon, he starts with these series of, of blessing statements, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Jesus is using wisdom language. He's presenting himself as a rabbi, as, as a Messiah, inviting his disciples who have gathered around him and in this crowd around them into a life of flourishing, into the good life. He's depicting what it's like to live under the rule and the reign of God, what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. And what we've seen so far is that the way of this kingdom is upside down. That the way up is down. That, that actually life in the kingdom starts with a recognition of one's brokenness, of one's emptiness, of one's need for God to do a work in his heart and life. That it's those who know they're empty who are blessed because they're the ones that get filled up by God. Jesus would say similar things later when he says things like those. I didn't come for those who have no need of a doctor. I came for the sick. And that's essentially what he's saying here as he starts his sermon. That if, if you're poor in spirit, that if you mourn over your brokenness and your sin, then you're the blessed ones. And God will meet you there. And so happiness isn't found so much in earthly comforts or in having it all together as it is in wholeness of heart and life. That flourishing is found, as, as Brett helped us to see last week, in a life of mercy and purity and peace. And even if that results in persecution, that's better than the alternative of living with a divided heart. That the way to true happiness is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so this morning, Jesus wants to continue to teach us and to show us the way 
to flourish. By connecting this way of life that we've been looking at to our purpose as his disciples. In my Bible, verse 13 starts a new heading. You know, those, those headings weren't original. Matthew didn't put those there, but they kind of help us organize our Bibles to, to indicate that there's a little bit of a shift going on. But, but listen to me, everything that we're going to see this morning in these verses is connected to everything that Jesus has just been saying. We can't separate verses 1 through 12 from verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth is, is connected to the Beatitudes. It's only as we follow Jesus into this beatitudinal life that we're able to live as his messengers in the world. We, we can't be salt and light, in other words, if we're not meek and merciful. The Beatitudes are the preconditions for living as effective disciples in the world. But now Jesus wants to help us think about our role as his emissaries, as his representatives, as his disciples in the world. He wants to give us a picture of what it looks like to live impactful lives for the kingdom. According to a, a Forbes magazine article that I read this week titled The Purpose Happiness Link, a study published by Kaylin Ratner found that, that those individuals who felt a greater sense of purpose reported a greater satisfaction with life and overall well-being. In other words, one of, the, one of the primary origins of happiness is a sense of purpose. The article goes on to offer three ways that purpose leads to happiness. The first is that it focuses you. It gives you meaning. It gives you a guide for your life. That when we have a sense of purpose, we have a sense of direction. And this actually brings a sense of fulfillment. The second thing that it pointed out is that it grounds you. And what they mean by this is that purpose gives a clear sense to your life that, that leads you to actually lose sight of yourself in light of something bigger. The, the gospel word for this, or the, the biblical word for this is humility. That when you have a sense of purpose, you actually lose sight of yourself in something bigger than yourself. The third thing that this article pointed out is that purpose also connects you. That it gives you a sense of community as you live for something bigger than yourself. Now what's fascinating to me about this article and about these findings is that Jesus was saying very similar things in the Sermon on the Mount. That long before there were modern studies on, on the keys to happiness, Jesus was preaching as a rabbi about the meaning of life and about the way to happiness. And essentially what he says is that it's tied to living with a sense of purpose which guides you, grounds you, and connects you to others. It's living as salt and light. Salt in the first century had many functions. I, I read one commentary that pointed out eight different functions of salt in the ancient world. Don't worry. I'm not going to preach on all eight. I realized that a few weeks ago, I even gave the caveat. My first point is the longest point. And I looked over at a certain point and Brett realized, oh, those were all sub points of the first point and he's still on the first point. <laughs> so don't fear. I'm only going to talk about three this morning. 
three purposes of salt in the ancient world. The first and most obvious is that salt flavors. Salt brings flavor. It makes food taste better. I cooked some steaks last night, and, and truthfully, like we were sitting at the dinner table, and they were good. But I said, man, I undersalted these things, man. And it was just, the, the steak was just a little bland. You ever gotten, you ever gotten McDonald's french fries and they forgot to salt them? I mean, what a disappointment. Is there anything worse? Some of y'all are like, I don't go to McDonald's. I'll, I'll avoid uh, criticizing you too much. McDonald's french fries are amazing. Thank you. Thank, I'm finally getting some talk back on McDonald's french fries. Man, have you ever had like fresh out the fryer and they kind of went double on the salt McDonald's french fries? God, those things are so good. There was a coffee shop in Birmingham when we lived there called Church Street Coffee. And they, every year, like, I don't, I don't know who does these polls and votes, but like every year they had the best cookie in the state of Alabama. They were amazing. And what set them over the edge was the little sprinkle of sea salt that they would put on top of those things, man. It just made all the flavors burst. And this is what Jesus is saying about the life of disciples. It's a powerful illustration for how followers of Jesus are called to live in the world. That Christians are to be the salt on the McDonald's french fries. That we're, we're, to, be, we're to be the sea salt on the breakup cookie. As we follow Jesus, as we live out the ethics of his kingdom, as we live this beatitudinal kind of life, a humble life, a meek life, a, a life hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a life of mercy and purity of heart and peacemaking, that we make the world better and we show Jesus to be the missing ingredient in people's lives. I mean, there are so many great historical examples of this, right? We think about individuals like Florence Nightingale, the, the founder of, of modern nursing, we think about like Frederick Douglass, the civil rights activist. I mean, these amazing individuals that made their world better because of their relationship with Jesus. But there are also countless examples of this. As I was thinking through this, I was thinking about going on this litany of like historical examples. And then I realized how potentially defeating that could be for most of us. Because most of us are going, man, I'm not Florence Nightingale. I'm not Frederick Douglass. Then I began to think about my own life. I started to think about how when I was 13, I moved from Colorado Springs to Columbus, Mississippi, 1,300 miles away from my dad. And I thought about the men in my church who just took the initiative to step into my life just to be a faithful male presence for me, to do things like take me fishing, who would have conversations with me about my relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to be salt. I think about 
even some in our church who are doing amazing work among refugees, bringing the salt of Christ to the world. I think about those in our body who have fostered children or adopted children, bringing the savor of the Savior into everyday life. That's what it means to be salt. Salt flavors. It also preserves. That's the second picture here I want us to consider. In the first century, there wasn't modern refrigeration. And so things would spoil if there wasn't a way to prevent the decay. And so salt was commonly used to preserve foods. It would kill bacteria. And so they would rub salt into meat to keep it from decaying. It would slow down the breakdown process. This made salt, by the way, really valuable. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, worth its weight in salt. Or we use the language of a salary. Well, that comes from the idea of Roman soldiers getting paid in salt because salt was precious. It was precious in this sense of preserving and and holding back the decay of things. The presence of believers is, is intended by Jesus to be a shield to the brokenness and sin in our world. A, a local church in a community over time should mean a reduction in the brokenness of that neighborhood. I think, I think one of the questions that we need to wrestle with as a church is, if we closed our doors and moved outside of town, would people notice? Would there be felt loss? Hey, this, by the way, and this is not a dig. This is not a dig at any—please hear me. I'm going to caveat the caveat. This is not a dig at any church. Every church has their own calling. This is one of the problems with suburban flight. When we uproot and move out, we leave a gospel void in the heart of the city. That's why I think our calling here is critical city life to be in the heart of the city and to be a gospel presence in the heart of the city. This is not a knock on wherever you live. All I'm saying is we need local churches in the grubby, grimy areas to be a gospel presence, to hold back the moral decline and decay, to be a Christ-like presence in the world. Third way I'll point out here is that salt also fertilizes, and this is kind of connected to the previous one. Ancient civilizations would use salt as a fertilizer for the soil. Depending on the the conditions, it it could help the earth retain water or make fields easier to plow. It could release minerals for plants. It would kill weeds. It would protect crops from disease. It would stimulate growth. Jesus specifically describes his people as the salt of the earth which in a rural farming culture might have immediately drawn this idea to mind. Pastor Andrew Wilson says this. He says, disciples are meant to be in those places where conditions are challenging and life is hard. We are sent to enrich the soil, to kill weeds, to protect against disease, to stimulate growth. And as we scatter, life springs up in unexpected places. Barren lands become fruitful. When the people of God are redeemed, as the prophet says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And so when Jesus 
says that you are the salt of the earth, what did exactly he mean? Did he mean that God will use us as a flavoring? Or did he mean that God would use us as a preservative? Or did he mean that God will use us as a fertilizer? And, and the answer, of course, is yes. Right? I think Jesus knew that salt had multiple uses. I think he knew that he was intentionally providing multiple ideas. That his disciples would have several characteristic qualities that are given for the benefit of mankind. But here's the big idea, I think, when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. It's that disciples are given as a service to the world. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, salt is not for itself. It cannot salt itself. And so it is with followers of Jesus. What we are, we are for the world and not for ourselves. I just wonder, just pause button real quick. In your search for happiness or in your search for purpose, I wonder if you've subtly made life about yourself. Have you made it about serving yourself? In your search for happiness, have you fallen into this idea that the way to happiness is, is self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-care, self-service? Isn't this the message of the culture? What Jesus is telling us is that if we want to find true fulfillment, we're called to live selflessly. That your purpose is found in living as salt. Dale Bruner says, as salt exists for food, so disciples exist for the world. He goes on and he says, salt, a centimeter away from food is useless. And Christians not living for people outside of themselves are worthless. Now hear that in the right vein. As it relates to our purpose, certainly all of us None of us are worthless, right? But this idea of living as salt, hear what he's saying. Salt, a centimeter away from food is useless. And disciples, not living for people outside of themselves. When we get trapped in living for ourselves, we render ourselves useless disciples. There, there's a principle of proximity here. Disciples are ineffective in the world at a distance. Church, listen to me. We are not called to a holy huddle. We are not called to bomb shelter ourselves away from the big bad world. We cannot live effectively as disciples of Jesus that way. I mean, you think about the life of Jesus. What does John 1.14 tell us? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He put on flesh. He drew near. I love how Eugene Peterson so powerfully puts it. He moved into the neighborhood. We're called to move into the neighborhood, to be close enough to touch. Salt is ineffective until it makes contact. The other thing that it says here is that salt is also ineffective if it becomes contaminated. Notice the warning. But if salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? 
It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's, there's some debate about this verse because technically salt can't lose its taste. So what's Jesus talking about here? What's he getting at here? I think it's this. We, we know that salt is a mineral. And, and often salt can become packed in with, with other minerals. It can form bonds with these other minerals and when this happens, its savor is diminished because it's not pure salt. Until it's freed from those other things, salt doesn't taste good. It can have a bitter taste or a sour taste. And see, what Jesus is saying is that if we lose sight of our purpose, we can become like salt that's contaminated. We can, we can become no longer useful as disciples. We can become just like the world when the whole point is to be distinct from the world for the good of the world. The author of Hebrews calls us to lay aside every sin, but also every weight that so easily entangles us and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. I think these are helpful categories for us as we think about this calling to live effectively as disciples in the world. We should certainly lay aside the sins that would ensnare us. But, but the author of Hebrews says that there can also be weights which are not necessarily bad things, but they're distractions from the main thing. We're to, we're to lay off every distraction from following Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying in effect here. Don't, don't lose your saltiness by becoming entangled with the world. That's why he prayed for his disciples in John 17. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, that you keep them from the evil one. To be effective, we're sent into the world. But to be effective, we have to maintain our distinction from the world. There's actually an interesting double entendre in verse 13. The, the CSB translates the Greek word myreno as lose its taste. Yours might say lose its saltiness. But that word can actually convey the notion of foolishness. In other words, when a disciple forgets his calling, when he loses sight of his purpose, he becomes a fool. He's lost his way. Again, this is wisdom language. Jesus is teaching about the way to life. He's teaching about the way to fulfillment. He's teaching about the way to happiness. And he's saying the way to flourishing is by living out of your purpose. It's by leveraging your life to serve others. And when you lose sight of that, you actually become a fool. So I just wonder, do you want to live with purpose? Do you want to have a sense of satisfaction in your life, what Jesus says is don't make life about yourself. Live as salt. Give your life for the good of others. But Jesus adds a second metaphor. He says disciples are not only called to be salt, but also to live as light. Again, let's situate ourselves in the first century in a world without power grids and light switches. It is hard for us to appreciate the metaphor because we literally walk in a room and flip a light on. But back then, having a way to see in the dark was a critical consideration. Darkness was a real danger. And so when Jesus says in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world, 
Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is saying that he is the source of illumination that shows the way to life. And here Jesus extends that metaphor to us, to his followers, to his disciples. He tells them that they are also the light of the, worship, of the world by virtue of their relationship with him, that they give the ability to see and to know the way to God. Have you ever been in a room so dark that you literally can't see the hand in front of your face? It's a terrifying deal, right? You ever found yourselves in one of those situations like groping around in the dark trying to find a light switch or to find a doorknob so that you can get out? Jesus says that's the world. That's the world. People all around us, they're, they're, they're searching. They're feeling their way around for happiness. They're, they're, they're groping around for purpose. They're stumbling around looking for hope, for meaning, for truth. And Jesus' solution to their problem is us. You, he says, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. How are, how are people going to find their way? How are they going to find the light? You. And there's an important detail in, in verses 11, 13, and 14 that, that we might miss because of how English works. Those yous are actually plural. The better translation is y'all. Jesus is talking to the whole group here, not just one individual. And so what Jesus, I think, is saying here is really profound. Y'all, the group of disciples, are together the light of the world. A lamp on a lampstand that gives light for all. It makes us think of Revelation 2, where Jesus talks about the lampstand. And what's he referring to? Local churches. Listen to how Dale Bruner explains it, and you'll have to excuse his you folks because he's from California. Everybody knows that's a terrible translation. He says the yous in these verses are plurals. You folks. Scratch that. Y'all. Meaning that Jesus is speaking as much of the way the Christian community lives corporately as he is of the way individual disciples live personally. There is, there is to be something about the way Christians are, about the way they live together and talk about each other, and about the way they relate to the not always friendly surrounding world that is meant to catch the world's attention. That is to cause people to ask, what kind of people are these? Who are these people? I think he's right. I, I think the church is called together by Jesus to show forth the goodness of God in the way that we live and interact with one another. 
Paul says that the manifold wisdom of God is in the church. Listen, y'all. The church is God's plan A. It's God's plan A. Maybe you grew up like I did singing that song, This Little Light of Mine. I'm assuming it took its cue from these verses. But, but the real power in the shining of our little lights, what Jesus is telling us is when those lights come together. So when I moved to Mississippi as a 13-year-old, I, I was immersed into a world of redneck. Like, I had lots to learn. And, and one piece of education was going spotlighting. I mean, anybody ever gone spotlighting before? Now, to be clear, we weren't shooting deer, okay? That's illegal. But we would go for fun to see how many animals we could see in the dark with our lights. And so we would go deep outside of Columbus, Mississippi into some woods off of a road called Three-Legged Lady Road. I don't know how it got that name. <laughs> but it was pitch black, y'all. And we would go down that road and we would pull out our flashlights and, and we would see what we could see in the dark. But listen, then one day my brother went full on redneck and he bought a million candle power spotlight. And we plugged that thing into the cigarette lighter of his Pontiac Parisian and we went out into the woods. It was really redneck, I know. And when you turn that thing on, it shot a beam through the woods like all the way to Alabama. Like, it was unreal how bright that thing was. A million candles. Our spotlighting game became exponentially better. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying our light shines best when we put them together. That the power of living as light is found not in us as individuals, but in us corporately together as the body of Christ. Francis Schaeffer said it this way. He said, the final apologetic or defense of the Christian faith, after all the arguments have been made, is the way disciples of Jesus love one another. Listen to what he says. He says, without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give proper answers. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done very poorly, so it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men who are about us. But after we have done our best to communicate to the lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. The observable love of true Christians for true Christians. How are we going to display truth and beauty to the world? How are we going to be a city on a hill? Love of true Christians for true Christians. One commentator suggests that this is actually the central idea of what it means to be salt. He says, salt represents the savor of the age to come. And the disciples walking in the ways of the kingdom of God are calling those from the kingdom of this world to leave the bitter course or the bitter meal of the place of darkness. In other words, it's the church's job to be a chef's table that offers a taste of the kingdom of God. 
in the way that we live with one another, in the way that we serve one another, in the way that we treat one another, the world will smell the aroma of Christ. They'll see the spread of grace and they'll want to come and take a bite. We're called to be truth arrayed in beauty, to be an attractive display of the gospel, a city on a hill, a gospel counterculture. Listen, outside of these doors, when we go back to our our places of work and we go back to our neighborhoods and we go back to the world, out there it's self-service. It's every man for himself. It's boasting. It's dog-eat-dog. It's cancel culture. But in here, in here, in our city groups, we outdo one another in showing honor, as Paul would say in Romans 12. We give each other the benefit of the doubt. We forgive one another as we have been forgiven. We display the gospel. And notice that when we live this way, what the result is. Look at verse 16. The result is not that people are going around saying, man, those city life people are great. They say, God is great. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Bruner says, Christian works are to somehow be transparent unto God, revealing less their agent than their source. The purpose of our lives is to remove the veil from the Father's face and to display something of God's glory to the world. The goal of our lives is for people to look at us and to look at the way that we interact with one another and for them to go, man, that has to be God. There's no other explanation for that kind of kindness, that kind of hospitality, that kind of mercy than the grace of God. My wife and I like to watch cooking competition shows. Don't judge me. And one of the things that I've learned over the years of watching these shows is that you definitely don't want to undersalt your food. In a cooking competition, bland food will get you sent home quickly. But too much salt is not a good thing either. But if salt is applied in just the right amount, what it does is it disappears into the food as a catalyst for flavor, and it brings out all of the flavors of the other ingredients without attracting attention to itself. And Jesus is saying that's how we're called to live. That we're sent into the world in such a way that we enhance the world and bring out all the flavors of Jesus unto people. Not so they notice the salt, but so they notice him. We want people to look straight past us to God, for him to receive the glory in and through our lives. But let me give you one more illustration as we close. No one goes to a museum to look at the frames. I mean, you don't go stare at a Van Gogh and go, man, that frame's pretty cool. Now you look at the paintings and you marvel. Friends, we're frames. We're frames. 
The goal of our lives is to frame up how good Jesus is. Charlie Date says the purpose of your life is to display something of the glory of God to the world. We want to be a church that shines a bright light on Jesus. We want people to see how wonderful He is. We want people to experience in and through us His goodness. And so listen, God is sending us out into the world, into our workplaces, and into our classrooms, and into our cul-de-sacs, and into our apartment complexes as salt and as light. You are sent for the good of the world as light in the darkness. And, and listen to me, what Jesus is telling us is that when we live into this calling, we'll find true happiness. That we'll experience his purpose in a profound and a fulfilling way. Let's pray together.